Hi, everyone. This is Cynthia Vaughn. I'm the Public Affairs Officer at Warrior Transition Command. And um, I just want to check and see who we have on the phone. Right now I have Lori Geckel, a representative from Divids, and Adam Ashton from the News Tribune. Is there anybody right. else? Is there anybody else there? Okay, and, and here in the room, the media that we have. Oh, <laughs> hi, this is Cynthia Vaughn. Who just joined us? Okay, so we have an anonymous person on the line. Um, that's okay. So in the in the room, we have um, Richard Sisk with Military.com and Dave Bergen with News. And Janie, Janie, Ackman. Janie Ackman with NPR. And did somebody just join us on the phone? Okay. Well, we're going to go ahead and get started. But before we do that, I'd like to ask you all, whether you're in the room or on the phone, when you ask a question, please state your name and identify your organization so that we know who's, we know who's talking. And the other thing we'll do is we'll make sure that each each reporter gets a question and then after that we can we can see if there's more time left for other questions. But right now I'm going to turn it over to Colonel Chris Toner. He's the commander of the Warrior Transition Command. He's going to start off with a statement and then we'll take questions after. Yeah, so uh, I guess we're on the cusp of good morning and good afternoon depending on where you are and your dial in. But um, first off, I just want to tell everybody thank you for being here today and thanks for joining me. Um, you know, I consider this a, a collaborative effort as we continue to render world-class care to our soldiers and families out there uh, in our program. And uh, it's important and we asked to schedule this today so that uh, uh, we can provide you with facts and circumstances um, concerning uh, the uh, move to consolidate our warrior transition units in our warrior care program. Um, but I just ask that you bear with me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk for quite some time here because there's a couple things I want to cover. Uh, and, uh, and I know we're here to talk about consolidation, but there's actually one thing up front I want to talk about uh, before we get into it. And uh, I want to start off by saying just sort of qualifiers uh, from my perspective is that, uh, you know, the Warrior Care Program is an enduring program. We are not walking away from Warrior Care and certainly this consolidation uh, has uh, everything to do with being able to provide world-class care to our soldiers and continue that, uh, that mission. Um, within our program, uh, there have been allegations of mistreatment, uh, harassment, belittlement of soldiers. And I want to let you, everyone know out there, and, and, and I think most of you know that I'm on record of saying this previously, is that I treat all these allegations uh, very seriously. Uh, they're investigated as appropriate out there and that we are absolutely committed um, uh, to our soldiers and our families to making sure that uh, they get a world-class uh, care. Uh, I personally believe this is our sacred obligation as an infantry commander, uh, both a battalion commander in Afghanistan and then a brigade commander in Afghanistan. I've had my soldiers and families go through this program, uh, and I'm absolutely committed to them. With respect to uh, allegations of har harassment, belittlement, uh, and disrespect, uh, my expectation and the expectation of all uh, Army leaders and senior leaders is that all of our soldiers and family members and, quite frankly, our cadre are to be treated with the utmost of dignity and respect. Uh, we adhere to Army values. 
and there's zero tolerance uh, for anything other than that. And uh, we've done a lot through the years uh, to address that and educate our, our, our folks across the board, um, but we are absolutely committed to uh, eliminating that uh, from, our, um, from our force out there across the board. And I say that as I transition to the first thing that I want to talk to you about. And so I'd ask that you keep what I just said in mind. And so last night, uh, local uh, news channel NBC4, uh, Washington, D.C., rebroadcast uh, their NBC Dallas affiliates, 6 April television broadcast. Uh, I won't read the whole title, but it was titled, New Records Show Injured Soldiers Describe Mistreatment Nationwide. And I want to talk to you up front first about that um, because it's important that you have all the facts. I want to make sure you have the facts so that you can make your own assessment of the report, again, that was aired last night, uh, and this is a repeat of the same story that aired in Dallas on 6 April. The general storyline from this report is that report, the reporter is claiming widespread mistreatment of soldiers that includes belittlement, harassment, and disrespectful actions by their chain of command. Um, it's important to note that the documents that the reporter used for their story are from the 2010 to 2014 timeframe covering all of our warrior transition units in the program at the time. And those reports are our own oversight reports from our own ombudsman. These ombudsmen are independent subject matter experts, well-trained, who are located in our military treatment facilities and our warrior transition units. And they serve as an advocate for our soldiers and family members. Uh, and not only in the warrior transition units, but they serve our veteran population that's seeking medical care and treatment uh, they serve our family members, and certainly they serve the, uh, the soldiers that uh, are um, assigned to that local installation. And I want to make sure that uh, you have the facts uh, concerning uh, free freedom of information material that we provided to the reporter team. And again, these are our oversight documents. Uh, this is not new news to us. Uh, these are documents that we have used to, to uh, realize uh, uh, program improvements uh, since 2010. Um, I also want to tell you up front, in the February time frame, uh, the facts that I'm going to talk to you about here, we provided these same facts concerning the release of this material to the House Armed Services Committee, the Senate Armed Services Committee, uh, professional staff members, uh, the disabled American veterans, the Vietnam veterans, uh, the veterans of foreign wars, and the Iraq-Afghanistan Veteran Association, we provided them with all of this material uh, prior to giving it to uh, the reporting team. So uh, uh, again, in a, in a collaborative effort to make sure that we are keeping uh, our, uh, our uh, advocates and uh, supporters and those folks that have vested interest in our program informed. Uh, this ombudsman data that we provided to the, uh, to the reporter is from the January 2010 to October, October 2014 timeframe. It comprises a total of 1,137 issues across all warrior transition units during that timeframe. A review of these issues led to the identification of 171 issues primarily identified as unfair treatment a lack of communication, and disrespect. And again, these are issues or allegations, 171 out of 1,137. So you ask, 
well, you know, what about the other 900 or so issues? Well, quite honestly, uh, again, a reminder, some of those issues are from veterans, some of those issues are from family members outside the WTU, some of those issues are from soldiers outside the WTU. Some of those issues uh, have absolutely nothing to do with uh, uh, what we would categorize as allegations of harassment, belittlement, or disrespect. So runs the gamut of uh, I need to get an award added to my uh, DD-214, uh, I need uh, financial supports for something, or I need to check on a status of my uh, warrior transition packet to get in, gain entrance in the war, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so we broke it down to 171 issues. It's important to note that all 171 of those issues were resolved with the great teamwork of the, uh, the ombudsman, the soldier, uh, who brought the allegation and the leadership. 92% of those were resolved once the issue was addressed with the leadership. And so again, uh, I feel this is critically important that we maintain this uh, capability in our ombudsman out there in our program. And the other 8% were resolved directly with the soldier. So it could have been a communication issue or something that the soldier was unfamiliar uh, with uh, that the ombudsman helped resolve. Of the 171 issues identified, 135 were categorized as general type issues and 36 were categorized as har harassment. So again, uh, in these ombudsman's reports, if we had anything in there that was written to the point of belittlement, harassment, uh, concerns against the chain of command, that's included in these 171 reports. Of, uh, and it, it's important to note of the 36 harassment issues, those were generally made by the soldier or family uh, member. And so, again, I would highlight to you that those 171 were resolved, um, as I stated earlier. And then I want you to understand, as you take this into context, first off, uh, if I have one soldier out there that uh, has the perception, the belief that are not, they are not treated with dignity or respect, uh, or they, are being, they feel like they're being harassed or belittled, that's a concern for me. That's a serious concern for me, and I take this seriously. I receive, and the Sergeant Major receives, the Ombudsman's report every morning. In fact, today we had uh, 10 on the Ombudsman report. Uh, and those 10 reports were largely along the lines of financial assistance. Um, one was a veteran, uh, and the other uh, reports were uh, concerning the status of their uh, Warrior Transition Unit packets to gain entry into the, to the Warrior Transition Units. So I review those reports every day. I've done for the last nine months that I've been in command. And if I see anything in there that concerns me and with the respect of not treating soldiers with dignity and respect, I immediately engage with that chain of command, and we immediately find out what's going on with that allegation and actions taken as appropriate. I want you to understand that I expect zero tolerance and that we will uh, treat all soldiers with dignity and respect. But I understand it's a human-based uh, organization, and we're going to have those issues, and we need to address them immediately. But during this period of time, from 2010 to 2014, 45,111 soldiers were served in our warrior transition units. So if you compare the 171 issues against the 45,111, that is 0.4% of the total population reported to the ombudsman. Okay, so it's important you understand the context of this, and again, I'm committed to getting to zero percent. Um, now I'll break that down to you because uh, as you watch the uh, the report, uh, there'll, there'll be some discussion about 
the population has come down, it was higher than, et cetera. But let me just give you the per capita, okay? So we level uh, the, the issues. So, and I'm talking specifically about uh, the program improvements that we have made since, uh, really since 2007, but largely uh, 2010 on. So in 2010, one of every 299 soldiers presented an issue. 2014, one of every 553 soldiers presented an issue. That's over a 50% reduction. And that 50% reduction can be attributed to program improvements. Those improvements such as everything from facilities, you know, we have soldier family and assistance centers that we've put into our warrior campuses out there that render uh, a multitude of care uh, for the soldier. Uh, we've uh, redesigned our training program uh, for our cadre and our senior leaders uh, that uh, occurs both in San Antonio and at my headquarters in Alexandria, where we bring in the leadership and we, uh, and we uh, again, go over these lessons that we've learned over time and make sure that we do not have these issues inside our formations. Uh, we have increased the cadre selection uh, criteria. So that, that just took place last uh, spring of uh, 2014 with a policy that went out that uh, made the criteria for selection for our cadre out there more robust, a higher quality level of cadre. Uh, and and uh, I can tell you now in the next uh, coming months, uh, we are gonna, going to, um, uh, we are taking a look at right now of our cadre selection with the intent of even increasing that and making that uh, a higher level of uh, competition for our uh, selection of our cadre. Uh, our career and education program, uh, has, uh, has been a focal point for us. We established the Comprehensive Transition Program in March of 2000, uh, 2010. Uh, that program, just generally speaking, uh, is uh, built by the soldier for the soldier with this uh, assistance from a uh, highly selective and educated and subject matter expertise team that sits down with a the soldier. They integrate their medical care, they integrate their rehabilitation, and they integrate their transition activities, whether that's back to the force or as a civilian, uh, and that program came in in March 2010. Uh, as you all know, we do uh, uh, quarterly town halls. I run a very robust organization inspection program. Uh, I have recently instituted a uh, quarterly stand-up training day where the units out there uh, focus on uh, key aspects of the training program, uh, re-highlight some of those uh, critical aspects of our program like profile, uh, hearing profiles, uh, making sure that we're doing uh, good barracks inspections, that we have the facilities out there for our soldiers, and all kinds of other training occurs during that uh, time frame. And last year, we uh, also published a, uh, uh, a soldier and leader guide. And the importance of that is, quite honestly, uh, if, you, if you take a look at the numbers there in terms of just communicating to our soldiers and making sure they understand the program, and ensuring that our soldiers, families, and cadre understand the program has allowed us to reduce uh, uh, these issues being brought forward to ombudsmen and other people. So that all of that has contributed to that significant reduction uh, of the last four years. And so I wanted to make sure you had the facts. I wanted to make sure you had that uh, out for you. Those same facts, again, were provided to those individuals I talked about earlier. Uh, and and uh, we have the ability to give you those same facts uh, should you request those facts. And so I wanted to talk about that up front, uh, make sure you had uh, that information, uh, because uh, the next thing I want to talk to you is about what we're here to talk about today 
is the consolidation effort. And I first want to tell you that uh, none of this reporting uh, had anything to do with the effort to consolidate our warrior transition units. In fact, the fact of the matter, uh, this staff study started last July. And it is a routine process that we do in the Warrior Transition Command. Every six months we do a strategic posture review where we look at uh, our footprint, the number of units that are out there, and we look at uh, our ratios of cadre and clinicians to our soldiers. And so this is a normal part of that process. Um, if, if you remember, at the high water mark for the Warrior uh, Transition Units out there, we had 45 Warrior Transition Units and over 12,500 soldiers in the program. Uh, at one point in time during the surge, the height of the surge in Afghanistan and Iraq, probably the, uh, or at the 08 uh, 09 time frame. Uh, and we've seen a steady uh, decline of our population over time. You know, thank God we do not have combat generating casualties out there. And so our population has come down. We're at 3,654 soldiers in the program right now. That's about 52% reserve component, National Guard and, uh, and uh, Army Reserve, and 48% uh, active duty. And as we've looked at that and what we took into planning, uh, considering over time is we believe our enduring requirement, as long as combat is not generating casualties, to be around the 3,000 uh, mark for soldiers. And that, that, that is just a normal price of doing business and training, uh, accidents and soldiers getting uh, ill. So uh, wounded, ill, and injured, um, um, folks in there with the wounded aspect of it uh, certainly uh, significantly declining. And so our current footprint is where we're at right now with 25 warrior transition units. So for that 3,654 soldiers out there, I have 3,192 cadre and clinicians. So I'm just getting close to almost a one-to-one -one ratio between cadre clinicians and our soldiers out there. Um, so we're looking at building a program to take care of 3,000 soldiers, but what we also took in the planning was a, as a concern given the ambiguous nature of the world right now, that we maintain the ability to reverse quickly if we have to. And so I, I'm going to describe to you what we're going to, and I'll just tell you up front that although I'm programming myself to be able to care and concern for uh, 3,000 soldiers, I have the ability with the footprint that I'm going to describe to you to rapidly uh, uh, reverse and, uh, and reach the capability to take care of 8,100 soldiers with existing facilities. Okay, so, and that's critical that we, uh, we understand that as we move into the, uh, into the program. Um, this is an enduring mission. Uh, the program itself is not changing from the standpoint of the world-class care and transition support that we give to our soldiers. This maximizes our reversibility. It is, it is as I lay this out for you, it is aligned with our divisions, our corps, uh, headquarters, uh, a uh, large demo mob site, and I'll go over each one of these with you and, uh, and uh, Walter Reed and Brook Army Medical Center. It also achieves sort of a tipping point for us in terms of leadership focus. So we will no longer have company-size warrior transition units in the program. There will be either a brigade, a level unit, in, in one case a brigade, and the rest are battalion-level organizations. So as you know, with the brigade and battalion, you get that level of command team. You get a staff that's associated with it and they're right there uh, overseeing the execution of those companies in their footprint. 
This will allow us to increase standardization for care. It allows me to take an organizational inspection program uh, with 25 units that, you know, I, I pretty much was hitting them about every 18 months. Uh, now I can get out there and I can conduct an inspection uh, of my, you know, my own inspection of these units uh, every year. And this is in addition to all of the other inspections from outside agencies, whether that's DOD, Army IG, et cetera, that go down into uh, our footprints. So we're moving from 25 to 15. Um, I won't cover all the divisions, just to say that every division location has a warrior transition unit. Every core location has a warrior transition unit. One TRADOC installation, which has a large Forcecom footprint and is also the large uh, MOB DMOB site is Fort Benning. We felt it was important to maintain a warrior transition unit there. And then major med medical centers, uh, Walter Reed, uh, which includes Fort Belvoir and Brook Army Medical Center. Um, we will come out of Alaska. We'll maintain the capability uh, right now in, in Hawaii and, uh, and in, in Europe. The inactivations include the following locations, and they're sort of ordered in uh, large, uh, from large to small. Uh, Fort Gordon, Fort Knox, Eustis, Fort Leonard Wood, Fort Sill, Fort Polk, uh, Fort Richardson, uh, Meade, Balboa, which is a joint uh, activity in San Diego, and uh, Fort Wainwright. So it affects right now in the population about 800 soldiers. Let me talk a little bit about the soldiers in those inactivating locations. So uh, right now the timeline for inactivation is to occur not later than 1 August 2016. And so we purposely built that timeline uh, with the intent of um, setting the conditions for success for our soldiers to be attrited out of those units so that we do not have to move them or their families. We don't want to create that kind of friction or transition uh, activity to a soldier. So we've built that timeline to August 2016 to address that. However, I will tell you that we also have done our vignettes and are prepared to move soldiers in the event that uh, either clinically or from transition support activities, we cannot um, um, leave them in the units or, or, or they'll exceed to pass the inactivation time. And so we have the ability to move those soldiers to another warrior transition unit. But again, that's a last resort that we want to avoid and we think we have the timeline that will facilitate that. Um, I'll also remind you that that's not, that is not uh, unique uh, to this specific operation uh, within the medical command in the United States Army. We move soldiers and families all, all the time to get the, to get the medical care they need. So those programs and policies are in place and it's nothing that we have to create. Let me talk about uh, soldiers that need to be entered in a warrior transition unit that may no longer have that option in the location that they're at. So I'll use Alaska as an example. So the senior commander in Alaska who has identified a soldier uh, that requires entry to the WTU, it is the same exact process. That process will not change. The, the commander, the military treatment facility commander, the senior commander, what we would call the triad of leadership and uh, part of the triad of care will identify that soldier for entry to the warrior transition unit. And then we'll, we'll base it off of each individual soldier's needs. So uh, if the soldier's 
uh, predominant need is medical care and there's one location that, that they need to go to, then obviously medical care pretty much trumps everything. But if the soldier, for instance, is from Clarksville, Tennessee, wants to go to uh, Clarksville, Tennessee, we have a warrior transition unit at Fort Campbell, they can provide the medical care that they need, then by all means we're going to try to get that soldier co-located with their family and do the things that we need to do. So throughout the Army formations, CONUS or OCONUS, we have the ability to address soldiers' needs and get them to the, uh, the care that they need. Now, with respect to the personnel impacted at these locations, so for the active duty military, uh, very simply, uh, they transition to a new duty assignment either at the location or as a part of a permanent change of station. For the reserve component soldiers, uh, we would like to support them in their ability to continue through their, uh, their commitment, uh, but if their commitment exceeds um, the inactivation of that unit there, then we'll have to work with each one of those on a case-by-case -case basis. They may have a job they can transfer into at that uh, location or they may have to be uh, released from active duty. This will impact uh, approximately 300 GS level civilians. And so last year when we inactivated five uh, warrior transition units and nine uh, CBWTUs, we did not incur a RIF uh, last year as a result of that inactivation. And how we did that was we uh, formed a personnel team at the Warrior Transition Command and uh, United States Army Medical Command and we worked with priority placement, military treatment facilities, and each one of those individuals to make sure that we supported them in their desires and transfers to other duties. And so the same thing will occur this time. We're standing up those teams to address our uh, civilian, uh, phenomenal civilian uh, expertise out there and tremendous patriots who have uh, served our program well. So I, I think uh, some of those folks will be absorbed back into the warrior care program where appropriate. Some of them will be absorbed into the, uh, into the medical care program as a part of uh, MedCom, uh, and then we'll work uh, with other desires out there as appropriate. And again, we've given, given us that kind of timeline to be able to address that, which is a much longer timeline than we had last time. Okay, so uh, I covered that. I know I'll apologize for a lot of information, but I think it's important that you understand that, and, and, and it's, it's important that you understand uh, sort of the complexity about what's going on, and I wanted to really talk about uh, uh, those two things uh, across the board. And again, I'll just tell you, you know, we're absolutely committed to our soldiers and family members out there, um, and, uh, and the opportunity to serve them is cer certainly an honorable one. We've got phenomenal cadre uh, and clinicians out there that are tremendous patriots and experts uh, who have put their heart and soul in this program, uh, and we will continue it. And so with that, I think it's time I open for questions. Okay. Thank you, sir. Um, Dave, we'll start with you. Our news, do you have a question? Just a quick one. Uh, is there one cadre for each, in, each of the WTUs, and when did that start? Is there one what? I'm Not sorry. cadre, the ombudsman. Yeah, so 2007 timeframe, uh, the Ombudsman program came in and they're uh, co-located with military treatment facilities or WTUs. Our expectation is we continue to maintain that. That's a, that is an oversight program that I am fully committed to because, uh, you know, they're, they're independent. They, they don't respond to me, but they're phenomenal subject matter experts that can get uh, soldiers with all kinds of issues solutions to their problems. Mr. Sisk, yeah. military.com. Quickly, Colonel, on some numbers, you going from 25 to 15? Sir. 
That's right. Correct. Um, and um, you expect to be losing something like uh, 300 civilian representatives. It affects 300 civilian. Um, now, you know, losing, it affects them. So our intent is to place these uh, civilians, of course, according with our desire. But we were hugely successful in doing this last time, and we'll continue that. And what are what are your numbers now, sir? Um, for um, those going through the program who uh, will turn that Okay, so yeah, uh, some statistics for you, right? Um, right now we're at 3654. Um, active component, 1753, that's 48%. Reserve component, 1901, which is 52%. I can break down the reserve component for you. National Guard's 887, and our uh, reserve is 1014. Um, over the total of the program, you know, over 66,000 served. Over 29,000 of those soldiers have been returned to the force. 29. Over 29,000. So, if you if you think about the remarkable aspect of that statistic, is we're dealing with complex care and requirements, and returning those the, the, that knowledge base and that leadership and that resiliency back to the force is uh, just a huge testament to the program out there. And we've separated over 36,000 uh, of those uh, soldiers. Uh, 36,000. Right. Um, uh, can you say how many of those were um, um, what the troops call chaptered out misconduct? No, uh, no, I can't. I don't. I don't have that kind of data. So, so, you know, just to define that for you, the the uh, local installation commander, that senior mission commander who reserves the general court martial convening authority. Um, that is their program, and they run that program. I don't track those statistics, nor do I have input uh, in those decisions. Okay. Uh, we'll go to the telephone now. Mr. Ashton, do you have a question? Yeah, this is Adam from the Tacoma News Tribune. Um, will the cadre and, I guess, soldier or patients at WTBs at the remaining facilities grow? or do you think they'll be about the same size they are now by the time you get to the point where you're closing the 10 that you've named today? Yeah, so we're, we're looking at that actually right now, and, and the sense is looking at the numbers and the fact that we've, uh, we've uh, given this uh, a pretty large or long lead time is that we don't anticipate uh, those numbers fluctuating too much, so not an absorption of folks uh, in the program. And again, it's along the lines of what we're tracking as sort of the enduring requirement. So as long as we don't have combat generating casualties, uh, we see that tapering off around the 3,000 uh, point in time. And the capacities at all these locations, uh, one, uh, can address that. And two, as a reminder, um, I, I have the ability to rapidly go up to being able to uh, take care of 8,100 soldiers just with the existing facilities. I have to add about 1,200 cadre uh, to that, but we can do that very quickly and uh, and reverse very quickly. Over. Um, you spent about uh, 20 minutes talking about the Dallas uh, TV report. Um, I don't have that ombudsman report. Can you just release it since it's been prepared for media release, or do we have to go through FOIA to get it? That's not. Yeah, I think there's a plan to get that out um, because we had similar requests and it's already been, you know, approved for uh, release. So uh, I've got folks doing the north-south in the room here, so uh, you'll get access to that uh, report through some medium. I think we're going to post it, but we'll let them know. Okay. They'll, they'll let you know. Okay. 
Okay. Is there is there um, any other media on the telephone? Did anybody else join us? Is there anybody out there who has a question? Adam, do you have anything else? Uh, no, I'm okay. Okay. Mr. Fisk? Yeah. Uh, Colonel, I believe, uh, and I haven't seen this latest report, this TV report, but... Um, uh, you were talking about a time frame of 2010 to 2014. Correct. That's what the material covers. Uh, that was that was the material. Yet, uh, I believe you have a 15-6 uh, underway at Hood now. So, there have been recent allegations along the same line. Yeah. So, one, I, you know, I can't comment on 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 investigations that are still going on. Okay. Um, um, what I can tell you is that uh, Southern Regional Medical Command Commander Brigadier General Holcomb directed that investigation. So uh, once that concludes, uh, obviously you can re you can request the uh, information through FOIA on that. Um, I, I come back to a comment you made about uh, separations, and so um, I think it's I think this is an important uh, thing that you understand. So. If, if we have a request from a chain of command for the separation of a soldier, uh, and don't quote me on the numbers because I'll probably get them wrong, 517, 513, it's basically a, a mental health separation that exists as a part of current Army policy. If, if there's a request by a chain of command to separate a soldier under, the, under one of those two chapters, and that soldier is diagnosed with PTS or TBI, then the Surgeon General is the approving authority for that separation. And that is a change, and I'll have to get the exact data when that changed, but that changed uh, a few years back uh, to ensure that we had, obviously, tremendous oversight uh, from a clinical aspect and a leadership aspect to make sure that we um, um, took a look at the issue with the soldier and made sure that their behavior that was resulting in the recommendation for separation wasn't linked to PTS or TBI. And so that is a change. In fact, that changed after I left Brigade Command, I think, because I didn't have that, uh, that requirement. So I'd say maybe the 2012 timeframe, but we'll get the actual date for you. But that changed to ensure that uh, our Army addressed the challenges associated with somebody who has cognitive issues associated with PTS and TBI. So I just wanted to make sure you, you, you had that because you asked a specific question about separations. And again, I don't have the numbers, but that, that, that is a unique uh, aspect to uh, our program. So in some cases, um, it, would be, it would go to the uh, Surgeon General. If, if they were diagnosed with PTS mm -hmm. or TBI, if they had a clinical diagno diagnosis of PTS or TBI, and they were put in for a separation under those two chapters, that final action goes all the way up to the sur Surgeon General for approval. And this um, uh, requirement for the approval of the Surgeon General, that went into effect when? Yeah, I'll have to get okay. that for that. That's what I was, I was struggling with in terms of when that actually went into effect. And uh, do you know how many have been referred I to? I do not. Year? I do not know. 
but again, we'll take a look at that and see if we have that data and, 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 you know, because we're dealing with legal issues and separation, whether or not it's releasable. But we'll, we'll take that question for sure. Okay, um, Adam, do you have anything else before we close? No, thanks for inviting us. Okay, thank you. Dave? Richard? Uh, yeah, it do look like I get collected here. Go ahead, take your time. Um, and Janie, you sure you don't have them? Okay, thank you. Uh, what might happen to the facilities you're closing? Are they going to turn into barracks at the different bases, or is it up to each installation? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Uh, so, so right now, what we're doing is we're working with uh, installation command, and not all the locations, but those locations <laughs> that have uh, warrior care campuses in the inactivating locations. For instance, Balboa is a joint facility, so I, I, I don't have anything there, but. Alaska is another great example. We have uh, phenomenal warrior campuses up there. And so we're working with Installation Command, acknowledging that those facilities will be repurposed, but placing constraints on those facilities to make sure that we maintain the warrior care standards, so the ADA compliant aspect of it uh, in those facilities. And that will include annual inspections uh, by uh, MedCom. So we'll go in there and just make sure that they are, you know, that somebody just didn't get the message and now they start gutting the ADA compliance. And the reason we're doing that is that actually gives me another a, a capacity of another 3,000 soldiers. So, you know, God forbid that we really start generating casualties and I, I know I'm going to go past uh, 8,100. We can rapidly get back into these inactivating locations stand them up because we don't have to build the uh, ADA compliant facilities. That gives me another 3,000 3, soldiers. And again, I told you the high water mark was 12,500. So again, that, that, that gives us a rapid ability to, uh, to reverse as needed. Okay, thank you. Uh, Colonel, I think it was uh, 2015 you had um, uh, FY 2015, um, the uh, Warrior Transition Unit, something like uh, 790 million. Uh, will this uh, will this consolidation will that bring down? I mean, can you yeah. give us anything on, on where where we're going with costs? Here? Yeah, your numbers are about about right. Um, and you know, I, I've I I have been I've always been uh, we've always been a fully funded program. Um, you know, this there's been no shortage of resources. Uh, sequestration budget was not a driver of this program, quite honestly, as we looked at the population coming down uh, and then kind of the ambiguity in the world and our ability to provide even better focused um, uh, care to our soldiers out there. Again, we look at this every six months. That's the driver of the program. The savings, and this is a rough order of magnitude, and it only takes into consideration my current budget. So. If tomorrow I woke up and I had 15 warrior transition units, uh, that'd be a savings of about $350 million. So, and again, that's a rough order of magnitude, and that's just uh, current dollars right now, here and now. Um, but given the fact that we're going to, we're, we're not uh, closing until August of 2016, obviously we won't start to realize all of that savings uh, until probably FY17. And uh, again, sequestration. 
got a driver here. I have nothing. Not at all. Not at all. I, I have never been under constraints or pressured or anything in terms of the Warrior Care Program. This is just, uh, it is good stewardship from the standpoint of, uh, and we've done it over time, as, as you've seen from 45 to 25, uh, in terms of allowing us to match our resources with our highest troop locations, maintain that reversibility, allow me to provide focused leadership across the board. Um, and so it's, it's, it's good to do that. Sir, um, once it's reduced down to 15 WTUs, um, it has the capability to surge from about 3,000 up to, did you say seven or eight? 8,100. 8,100, okay. Right. And that's just the, you know, the existing facilities. Now I have to apply cadre to that, about 1,200 cadre. Yeah, and so, you know, the story continues, right? So every six months we'll come back together and we'll take a look at it and we'll make sure uh, our force structure is right and we'll make sure our ratios. We, we, we are hard on ourselves. We are constantly adjusting the program. I like to think of us as a very agile organization uh, that takes uh, input and, uh, and changes rapidly. Uh, from a personal standpoint, again, have, you know, as a battalion commander in Afghanistan in 2006, we did not have warrior transition units. We had medical holding companies. My soldiers did not have access uh, to this program that we have today, and the Army learned from that. Uh, as late as 2012, as a brigade commander, uh, stood up the, you know, uh, was there when the Warrior Transition Unit stood up uh, at Fort Knox, and my soldiers coming back from Afghanistan had the ability to uh, uh, heal and rehabilitate and get transition support right there where they were. Um, but we're not satisfied. We're hard on ourselves. We're constantly assessing the program, um, and we will continue to do that uh, over the course. And so um, I think it's important to note. Some of these facilities that, that uh, are slated for closing, um, some of them um, only opened recently, didn't they? Um, did you yeah, you know. Knox is 2012? Or? Yeah, I think Fort Knox is actually probably 10 or 11-ish. Yeah, so I was I was in there as brigade commander in 2009. Now we can get you the exact dates, um, but again, that 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 ties into the aspect about maintaining those constraints and those facilities that we think is hugely important. And so we don't want, as they're repurposed, because you know they're they're phenomenal facilities, they're barracks, but we don't want them to go into the barracks and reduce that ADA compliance, those kinds of things. So. Um, um, those are the constraints that we want to put on the program to make sure that we maintain that. And Colonel, again, could you go, could you please go through um, if someone, a commander at at uh, at a base um, that will be uh, lacking of the warrior transition unit, decides that one of his soldiers is in need of the warrior transition unit. Uh, facility, uh, would um, you then go to the uh, the next nearest WTU for something in the civilian community? Or, or yeah, what so, so, so the senior commander is the top of the triad of leadership, and the military treatment facility commander at that location, they will follow the same process that they're following right now. And so there's a process where the soldier is clinically assessed and leadership makes a decision that they meet entry criteria, and so that is routed through the regional medical command, and a determination is made on what location they go to. Let me give you an example. So we're already doing this in Korea, right? So a soldier identified 
that meets Warrior Transition Unit uh, criteria in Korea is processed back through uh, uh, medical um, channels, regional medical commands, and a warrior transition unit is identified for that soldier. And that soldier is PCS'd out of Korea. They're sent to that warrior transition unit, and that's that's where they reside. Every effort is made, as we know, soldiers heal better, closer to their families, to get them uh, to, uh, closer to their families. Uh, but at the end of the day, obviously, safety and medical care for that soldier takes precedence. So the system exists as it is right now, and we have the ability to uh, to assign those uh, uh, soldiers. We're just increasing, obviously, the obvious aspect of it is you're increasing the uh, the areas. So right now I have warrior transition units in Alaska. We won't have those units there, and we'll have to start identifying those soldiers for movement out of Alaska. And does this um, consolidation effort, does this uh, affect at all the, um, you know, the existing community carrying? No, it doesn't. So um, let me give you some numbers of community care right now. And as you know, a fairly new program uh, has been up since October, so we're still assessing the effectiveness of the program. We have 577 soldiers in the program right now. It's largely a reserve component program. We have 39 active, uh, 301 National Guard, and, and 237 uh, Army Reserve. So we, we feel it's an important program. Uh, we're taking a look at uh, uh, reducing the transition friction that soldiers may have that are going into a CCU, and I'll give you an example, and that we maintain this function and capability at all our warrior transition units. So you might not see a community care unit company at a warrior transi transition unit, but what you'll have is a uh, CCU capability or function. So a good example is... Uh, if I uh, took the CCUs out of Texas, for instance, uh, and I had, or, or, or put it just only at Fort Hood, and I had a soldier that was in a CCU and he was living, he or she were living in Phoenix, well, they're literally driving by Fort Bliss, you know, every quarter to go in and get their assessment at Fort Hood because we bring these soldiers in and we assess them. That's an important part of the program. And so, you know, what, what I believe is we need that function everywhere so that the soldier doesn't have to drive past bliss they are they are managed by bliss and there may only be a few soldiers right in that particular uh we call them catchment areas but that we have that capability in there so we're not dragging the soldier uh, and causing that kind of friction out there so we're taking a look at the program we need to need to assess how we're doing in the ccu it's it's uh, obviously as you know sir hugely popular um and we feel it's important for soldiers to uh to um hill near home and, and the other you know um, um, you know sort of emotional aspect of CCUs is we have our uh, a lot of our terminally ill soldiers in those CCUs and they are at home with their family in their communities and we feel that that's important to support them in that aspect how many uh, CCUs now so we're at 11 uh, CCUs, and that means we'll go to a uh, function capability at, at uh, the remaining 15. So uh, a good example is right now you do not have a CCU at Fort Campbell. The CCU is at Fort Knox. So that capability in some capacity form will transition to Fort Campbell. Okay, we're going to close at this time. 
Uh, yeah, and we'll offer you the opportunity to say anything that uh, if you want to leave them with something. No, I, I appreciate uh, all your valuable time. It's important that we get the message out, and uh, it's important that uh, you know at the end of the day we are not walking away from our wounded warriors. Um, we all believe this is a sacred obligation, and uh, and I take that personally. Um, I'd also like to uh, take this opportunity uh, uh, to uh, let you know about uh, Warrior Games, Department of Defense Warrior Games. It's 19 through 28 June. It's at Quantico. So for those of you in the region, I would highly encourage you to get down and take a look at these incredible Americans and patriots, men and women, who have overcome, overcome their disability, they're demonstrating their ability, and they're phenomenal uh, examples of resilience uh, across all services. I'm not, I'm not just pumping the Army, obviously I'm biased, but across all services, and to see their incredible performance down there in competition uh, as, as only Americans can perform in competition, spirited competition, uh, you get to see them down there. So I'd highly encourage you to get down there, um, and if you need more information on that, we can certainly do it. Thanks for what you do, and, and thanks for being here today. Thank you all for joining us.